SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, the 1st of May, well, we have a conversation with uh, Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati. As you'll hear, the former president has joined Torres Strait Islander communities demanding greater action on climate change and has signed an agreement of solidarity with elders from uh, the islands. We also have a selection of shared stories from uh, NITV's NOLA program, including a pledge in the upcoming federal budget to fund national parks and water rights, and the Nonga community's fight to protect a sacred site under the threat of uh, a tourism development. Also from NOLA, we have a story about students from Land who are using a virtual gateway to view and learn about highlights of 50 years of your new business. Also coming up on NITV Radio today, we have a story about uh, a new studio for traditional owners in Central Australia to access one of the most important collections relating to indigenous ceremonial life in the world. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. And we are broadcasting from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. This bulletin, a Victorian elder reveals the benefits the proposed voice to parliament could have for indigenous Australians. The Prime Minister signals more support in the federal budget for workers whose industries are affected by decarbonisation efforts. And the Pope involved in efforts to bring peace to Ukraine. Indigenous elder has told a, a federal parliamentary inquiry of the benefits the proposed Indigenous Voice to Parliament could have for Indigenous Australians. Auntie Geraldine Atkinson, co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria, told the inquiry that her assembly is an example of what the voice could be. She says it represents the views, aspirations and wisdom of First Nations people at all levels. But she has warned that the voice should not compete with localised efforts to help and represent Indigenous Australians. It is critical that the national voice should complement and not interfere with or undermine the Assembly's role as a self-determined and representative body for the First Peoples of Victoria nor the progress that our communities have achieved to date towards treaty. Our communities direct our work in Victoria and we must remain responsible, responsive and accountable to them. 
the ACT government has apologized to the Nambri people for not recognizing them as traditional custodians of the Kamra area. Last year, Ngambri custodians Lea House and Paul Girawa House took the government to the Supreme Court over its indigenous protocol, which listed only the Nunawal people as traditional custodians. They argued that the omission of the Ngambri people violated their human rights. In a statement, the ACT government recognized that members of the Ngambri people have suffered hurt and distress as a result of the protocol, which it says will be reviewed. We have agreed to change the standard words of an acknowledgement of country in the ACT to recognise, in addition to Ngunnawal, that there are other families and uh, individuals who have a traditional connection to this land and to acknowledge any of those um, also. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese says there will be measures in next week's federal budget to help workers in industries affected by the move to clean energy. Mr Albanese is in Brisbane to mark the march for May Day, a day used internationally to celebrate workers' rights. But there have been allegations from parts of the trade union movement recently that the government is forgetting about some workers as it moves to decarbonise the economy. However, Mr Albanese says the government is consulting widely. We've been working with the union movement as well as with employers and industry to make sure that as the transition occurs, uh, we seize the opportunities that are there. Mr Albanese claims the transition to clean energy will, will create opportunities in regional Australia in particular. More than 40 organisations have written to the Federal Treasurer, Treasurer Jim Chalmers demanding action in next week's federal budget to provide more affordable and social housing. The advocacy group Everybody's Home, which is made up of a coalition of housing, homelessness and welfare organisations, says Australia is facing its biggest housing crisis in living memory. It is repeating its call for the federal government to fund 25,000 social and affordable homes each year. It claims research shows the overwhelming majority of voters support such action. It also wants tax breaks like negative gearing for landlords to be wound back. Amongst the other groups who have written to Dr. Chalmers are the Australian Council of Social Services, Anglicare Australia and the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Workers at Australian universities will go on strike starting today and it begins a week of industrial action based around complaints of casual employment and stagnant wages. Only about 3 in 20 jobs at Australian universities are permanent. The National Tertiary Education Union says this week's action is aimed at getting decasualisation clauses into enterprise bargaining agreements at every Australian university. It has already had some success at Western Sydney University, the Australian Catholic University and the University of Technology Sydney in the past six months and there are plans to convert hundreds of casual jobs at the University of Sydney to full-time jobs. The union says wage theft is a byproduct of casualisation. 
Unions in France will be marking International Labour Day today with protests across the country. It comes amid continued anger over President Emmanuel Macron's lifting of the retirement age from 62 to 64. Meanwhile, in China, Labour Day marks the beginning of a holiday known as Golden Week. It's the first such, it's the first such public holiday since COVID-19 restrictions were eased late last year. Over 240 million trips are expected to be made across China with access to iconic landmarks like the Great Wall and the Forbidden City already sold out. The Pope says he's involved in a peace mission to try and end the war in Ukraine. 86-year-old Pope Francis has just finished a visit to Hungary where he, he says he discussed the situation in Ukraine with both Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and a representative of the Russian Orthodox Church in Budapest. Last week, the Pope met Ukraine's Prime Minister, Denis Shmiel, in Vatican City and discussed a proposal by Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky that was described as a peace formula. But the pontiff says he doesn't want to reveal too much about his peace mission just yet. You imagine that in these meetings, we did not just talk about Little Red Riding Hood. We spoke of all these things. Everyone is interested in the road to peace. I am willing to do everything that has to be done. There is a mission now, but it is not yet public. When it is public, I will reveal it. The Red Cross says it's finally been able, after two weeks of efforts, to get aid into Sudan to resupply hospitals. The battle for control of the country has been raging since mid-April, and foreigners in particular are scrambling to leave with the governments of various nations engaged in varied efforts to evacuate their citizens. The Red Cross says it's been able to get enough equipment into the country to treat 1,000 patients or stabilize 1,500 patients. They've been able to do this with the help of the Jordanian Air Force. Some of the deadliest violence of this conflict has happened around Sudan's capital Khartoum. Patrick Youssef of the Red Cross explains where they're trying to get this aid. The hope is indeed to get these uh, materials as soon as possible to uh, some of the most uh, critically uh, busy hospitals uh, in the capitals. We are yet to determine where these will go, and that's exactly what our team is currently doing in Khartoum. An Australian man faces 14 months in prison after allegedly spitting in an imam's face at a mosque in Indonesia. Brendan MacArthur was arrested trying to board a flight to Australia. He has denied any wrongdoing and and in Instagram posts says he is Muslim and the victim of racism against foreigners. Imam Basri Anwar claims MacArthur was disturbed by the recitation of the Quran over a loudspeaker. Indonesian police say they are investigating. And to sport, Andrew Dillon will be the next chief executive of the AFL. Mr. Dillon is a lawyer who has worked for the AFL since 2000. He's currently the AFL's general manager for football operations. Current chief executive Gil McLachlan has held the chief executive's job for the last nine years.
Mr. Dillon will take over from his from him later this year. Mr. McLachlan will deal with several outstanding issues in his remaining time as chief executive, such as the introduction of a new team from Tasmania and an independent investigation into claims of racism at the Hawthorne Club. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome mostly cloudy 32, Perth sunny 24, Adelaide showers 19, Melbourne possible shower 18, Hobart possible shower as well on the top of 18, Albury Wodonga cloudy 14, Canberra shower 02, 15, Wollongong similar conditions 21, Sydney partly cloudy 22, Newcastle partly cloudy as well on the top of 22, Brisbane sunny 25, Townsville partly cloudy 28, Keynes mostly sunny 30 degrees, Alice Springs, mostly sunny day, top of 23. Darwin, sunny 34. And the Torres Strait Islands, a partly cloudy day, and the top of 32 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. or anytime online. I'm Bertrand Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this uh, Monday afternoon. Now coming up next, Pacific leaders support Torres Strait Islanders' court action for climate change mitigation. Also have stories from uh, NITV including the federal government's pledge to fund national parks and water rights. Nunga traditional owners in WA who are fighting to protect a sacred site against the tourism development. And story about students from Arnhem Land in the, in the Northern Territory who are using a virtual gateway to view and learn about a popular museum in Darwin. Also on NITV Radio we have a story about a new studio for traditional owners in Central Australia to access one of the most important collections relating to indigenous ceremonial life in the world. But first, elders from Saibai and Boigu elders and Boigu Islands in the Torres Strait get high-profile support from Pacific Island leader on their quest for action on climate change. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. I'm joined by His Excellency Anote Tong, the Chairman of the Pacific Elders Voice and former President of Kiribati in the sidelines of a just-wrapped visit to the Torres Strait Islands at the invitation of uh, Saibai and uh, Boigo Island Elders who are seeking a court order to force further cuts to carbon emissions in line with the best available scientific evidence. Your Excellency, first, thanks for accepting our invitation and welcome to NITV Radio. Uh, thank you, and I thank you for inviting me. Now, you're backing the traditional owners as they take the government to court. Why are you supporting them uh, in this action, especially taking the government to court? The, the, the campaign, the Andrex Seed, that I've been working on for decades, in which the uh, the Pacific Elders' voice has been supporting is the, um, the reduction in emissions. And uh, this case is about uh, the reduction in emissions, and... Uh, we did, in fact, visit Australia towards the end of last year to discuss that very issue. Uh, as an incoming government, we thought we'd uh, be able to make an input into the, uh, the for party new uh, policy formulation at the very early stages. And one of the issues we did discuss was um, how Australia might be more proactive in cutting its uh, emissions. And uh, of course, here I'm not simply talking about the domestic emissions, but uh, 
in particular focusing on the um, the high volume of exports of uh, uh, fossil fuel, which Australia is exporting to other countries, which of course contributes to the global emissions. I've seen the call by the two elders, Paul Carby and uh, Pabai Pabai. Their message is really, really alarming. They say that um, in a few years' time, especially considering the effects of climate change, uh, well, the effects are already being felt uh, deeply on the islands. The water line is uh, rising. Their cemeteries, which are the resting place of their people, are being washed away by rising waters. And you say the similarities with uh, other Pacific nations are very, very striking. Can you tell us what the situation is, especially on Kiribati? What I saw in in uh, Saibai and Boigu were really not uh, very different from our own experience. Uh, and uh, I did, in fact, share with the eldest the, um, the the video which I took early this year of my own home. Uh, the waves coming over, over the seawall and onto my front door. And so these are the realities that we are living with. And it was, um, for me, it was a very interesting experience to see that um, the it's not only uh, the us countries in the, in, in the center of the Pacific, but there are in fact other communities on the fringes of the Pacific and on the, the north of one of the more developed countries in, in the world. And um, it, it's an interesting experience. We are facing very, very similar challenges. Yeah, you said you've been involved with these communities for a while now, an involvement spanning from uh, the last government and uh, the current one. What main changes have you seen since the change of uh, leadership uh, in uh, our country? Are there are the new is the new leadership more proactive or is it just business as usual? Definitely, the the new government is um, a lot more proactive. That's definitely the case. The commitment to Cut emissions to zero by 2050 is certainly a, a very positive step, but uh, there seems to continue to be hesitation in going further than that. And, I th- and this was an issue that uh, we did raise with the members of the government when we came in September last year, how Australia might be able to uh, cut the, uh, its, uh, the emissions which it exports to other countries. And, uh, you know, that is quite uh, significant in, in in our discussion, there doesn't appear to be any clear roadmap uh, uh, for transitioning from that. We understand the high, high dependence of uh, uh, the Australia on the revenues derived from those exports, but um, the, the question really how sincere, how genuine are we in trying to transition? And especially if um, there, there doesn't appear to be a, a clear plan to transition from that dependence away from the revenue derived from the export of uh, fossil fuels. But of course, um, if I may add, you know, what's been the most disappointing uh, aspect of the climate change debate has been the uh, politicization of climate change. Um, Over the years uh, that I've been visiting and coming through Australia, that I've uh, been monitoring other events around the world, um, it's been most disappointing to to see the changes in administration along with the changes on, on, on policy on climate change. We have seen it here in Australia. We have seen it in New Zealand. We saw it in the United States and um, no doubt other countries. And that is disappointing. Climate change is not an issue of, of, of politics. It's, it's really a, an issue of survival. And just to play the devil's advocate, the government might argue that the coffers are empty, they need revenue from fossil fuels for, uh, well, many other things more than ever. They need the money to fund really urgent things like defense, social security, infrastructure development, and so on. 
<laughs> so they'll okay. keep digging and <clears throat> selling these fossil fuels uh, and coal, okay. coal out of the ground. And yes, I understand. Of course, um, uh, expenses like a three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollar expenditure on a huge uh, um, uh, militarization program, and uh, this is the issue that's been, at the, you know, um, uh, how. What are the major security concerns of our region? And of course, in the Pacific, it's been climate change, not so much the, the the rivalry between the superpowers. Okay, and so we saw how difficult it had been to come up with the resources. Yet we saw how easy it was to uh, dish it out on an issue, uh, you know, the purchase of um, uh, nuclear submarines. And that is, you know, we have to to try and understand that. And now you've lent your support to the two elders, helping raise their concern on a larger scale. How will this support translate beyond uh, the recent declaration? You know, it's it's got to be very clear that uh, this is not an, a new initiative on our part. I think we've been advocating um, for our own case in the Pacific. We've been advocating for the case of the uh, uh, the countries on the front line of the impacts of climate change. Uh, the, the, my visit to the Torres Island, uh, Strait Islands, is... Um, of course, I think it brings home to me the reality that we're not really the only uh, communities uh, being threatened. And I think it uh, really broadens the scope uh, and the, um, uh, of the, the, the kind of um, challenge that we are facing here as a global uh, community. It's much, much wider than just us in the Pacific, and we, we truly understand that. And to have the similar challenges being faced by a, a, group of, a, a community which is being looked after by one of the most developed countries in the world. And of course, they, their own action and taking their own government to court. I think we've, we would have liked to do that because we see this as a gross injustice. The question was, who should we take to court? And of course, you, you, I'm sure you're aware that um, the, the Vanuatu, together with the, the Pacific Island countries and a good number of the uh, countries in the world, are taking the issue to the International uh, Court of Justice, just simply as an, uh, for an advisory opinion at this stage. But it's all about seeking justice, because on the issue like climate change, it, there doesn't appear to be anybody to blame directly, because it's a slow onset. Nobody uh, responsible seems to be responsible, and that is the problem. And so um, uh, bringing in communities in the Torres Strait Islands, I think, will only adds to a real understanding of the magnitude of the problem, how far wide-reaching it is. And so hopefully the, um, in the future, we would work together with these communities to tell the world, the, world, the, the global communities, those responsible for perpetuating this, that this is real, that it is a huge moral challenge, eh? and they really need to step forward. Otherwise, our world will be gone. Yeah, you've been a long-time advocate for climate change for many years. Uh, especially during your tenure as president of Kiribati. I remember seeing you making very powerful presentations at the COP21 in Paris and uh, other forums in Morocco leading up to the next COP conference alongside the president of Palau and other leaders. You were truly a trailblazer in this space, but how has your country evolved in this space since you left office? Have they followed in your footsteps or just like in Australia, there's just some kind of uh, back and forth? <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that's extremely disappointing. There's, there was also a bit of politicking. I think uh, sometimes we, we, we politicize things which really are, are so critically important for our future generations. 
And that was sad. I was extremely sad. But I'm glad it's coming around now that we are coming to terms with the reality of what we are facing. And, uh, you know, it's um, it, it, it's such a, um, a tragedy that uh, we, we can uh, uh, politicize an issue which is so critical. Why I've been so not obsessed, I think close to being obsessed, because it truly is very personal to me, as I'm sure it's very personal for, to, for many, many other people who would bother to have the vision to see into the future, see what is happening on the ground today at home, see what's happening on the ground in different parts of the world here in Australia. You're, getting, you're seeing events which you never witnessed before and in the frequency that you did not expect. And so that should sound a very sound loud alarm for, for some action to be, to be made. I've got uh, grandchildren, and it's about ensuring that they do have a future. At the moment, with the predictions being put forward by the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, our islands will be underwater by 2060. In 20 2007, by the fourth assessment report, it was by the end of the century. Now we are seeing it moving forward because action that needs to be taken to, to avoid this is not being taken. And that is so sad. But I think it's about the reality of what's coming. And unfortunately, not so many people can have the, the, the vision to extrapolate the, um, what is happening on the ground, read the science, and then extrapolate into the future and see what it might be like in 2060 or, or beyond that, or even before that. I see the real possibility of uh, home islands not being uh, inevitable uh, in 20 years' time. And the question is, how do we deal with this? Okay. So unless we can come up with um, plans, radical plans for adapting to remain above the rising seas, uh, I'm afraid that the next option for us might be to uh, relocate somewhere else. Yeah. And becoming environmental refugees is the biggest concern expressed by traditional owners. And uh, that is illustrated uh, in the documentary they released ahead of the announcement that you're supporting their call to action. If worse comes to us, we can uh, say that uh, they'll be resettled on the mainland. Where would uh, the citizens of Kiribati find a refuge in the event of a climate catastrophe? Well, I really, quite frankly, I don't have the answer to that. I would have liked to be able to, to say during my terms in office, um, I would have liked to be able to come back from one of the international conferences that I attend and say, don't you worry when the, the seas rise and when the storms get strong, uh, get more and, and um, stronger, we will be able to survive. This is the plan. We would raise our islands. We would live on floating islands or whatever it is. But quite frankly, the international community has not focused on the beyond the floods, okay? Uh, we keep talking about cutting emissions and finding our way around those, you know, just fiddling with the uh, the numbers and the terminology. But we never really have focused on what is coming, what the real consequences would be for people. And I think it's about time to, to answer the question that you've just recently raised. You know, where do we go when it all comes down? And I assure you, there is no plan by the international community to deal with that. And... Um, we quite what I, during my time in office, I had to devise a plan and come up with radical, somewhat um, you know, and um, crazy ideas about building this, um, bringing in uh, floating islands, raising the islands, and maybe uh, uh, a policy of um, migration with dignity. It's all about trying to respond to this um, challenge 
which is it's an unprecedented challenge. It's going to change the, the, the nature of the world as we see it, as we know it today. And I think we've got to be prepared for that. Now, Your Excellency, before we part, uh, any final thoughts? Well, I, I simply would like to say that I hope we can see, look at this challenge with moral eyes, perspectives, rather than it's about me. We've got to learn to look beyond ourselves. And I think this is, this is why I've always referred to climate change as the greatest challenge, uh, uh, challenge for humanity. So it's going to test our humanity into the future. Your Excellency, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Okay. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. The federal government has pledged $100 million in funding for national parks and water rights. The pre-budget announcements include a $9 million plan to improve water ownership for First Nations people. Ricky Kirby reports. Answering the call for greater water rights. For many decades, we've been talking about how First Nations Australians can have more ownership of water, more control of water, and to hold it for future generations for the benefit of their communities. Over the next 12 months, the Commonwealth will work with First Nations groups to establish a national model to buy, hold and manage water resources. This is a starting point. Um, it's going to be a, a, a process that we need to be going through with our mobs on the ground level and talking to those um, nation groups right around Australia. We know that uh, South East Australia, First Nations people are been, have been calling for water entitlements for many years now and to see this on a national approach is, is um, a big opportunity to increase our participation in, in water management. First Nations people hold native title rights over about 40% of Australian land through native title but control less than 0.2% of our surface water entitlements. It's hoped the new plan will reverse the legacy of Indigenous dispossession and underrepresentation in water ownership and decision-making. We strongly do support this process. It's been, as I said, long overdue, and we're looking forward to the, for the next stages of where we're going to go to with the water reform for First Nations people in Australia. The Albanese government also pledging an extra $262 million in the upcoming budget to improve Kakadu and Uluru Katajuda National Parks, which the government says are falling apart after a decade of neglect. Some of the areas we don't even have a good croc site. Um, some tourists might come and say, oh, you know, it's a good place to swim. They don't know too much about the land. More than 30% of uh, National Park staff are Indigenous. It means great jobs in remote locations uh, for traditional owners uh, and, all the while, better protecting these iconic World Heritage listed properties. The latest funding for Kakadu comes on top of the $200 million announced in 2019 that has still not been spent. Ricky Kirby, NITV News. So from NITV, Noongar traditional owners in Western Australia are fighting to protect a major sacred site from a multi-million dollar tourism development. They say they've been forgotten in the planning process and don't want the project to go ahead. Kieran Cox has the story. This bend in the Collie River is known as the Mininup Pool and it's a sacred site for the region's Noongar people. We do all our death and birth ceremonies here. But especially our death ceremonies, we um, put our spirits of our lost loved ones here with the Creator. 
the police near the coal mining town of Collie, more than 200 kilometres southeast of Perth. Not far from its pristine waters is the world's largest dam Ural. Both attract thousands of visitors a year. In March, the WA government announced plans for a $10 million eco-resort near the pool, a move that stunned traditional owners. We can't have big decisions like this getting made about sacred sites without proper consultation. Mr Eugle says the Shire initially worked with traditional owners on a five-year plan to enhance the pool, but says their voices are no longer being heard. It makes me very sad that, you know, if that people think that they haven't been listened to and yet haven't really reached out to, to try and speak to anybody who might listen, where that place, if anything happens to it, is done in such a way that, um, that is very um, sensitive to the cultural significance of that place so that all of us can start to understand it and respect it. Traditional owners have started a petition to stop the eco-accommodation resort from going ahead. But the majority of council has already backed the development. Nothing can happen until A, it's funded, and B, it comes back to council. Non-Indigenous people have Christianity, and they have churches, they have cemeteries. Um, they have a God. We've got our God. This is, could be compared to their heaven. This is our comparison. Karen Cox, NITV News. So from NITV, well, we have a story about students from the remote Anem land community of uh, Lamingining in the Northern Territory who have been gaining insights into the rich entrepreneurial history of their ancestors. And they are doing this by using a virtual gateway to view and learn about a popular museum exhibition in Darwin, which highlights 50 years of uh, Yolno business. Guy McLean reports. These students are stepping back in time, their laptops providing a window into their region's past and a rich history of Yongu business dating back half a century. Yeah, I was learning about that Yongu stuff and I was, so my grandfather, also my father's father, makes me happy too so I can grow up and be like them. The students are viewing the Making Successful Business Together exhibition, which is on show at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory in Darwin, hundreds of kilometres away. The display was compiled by the Arnhem Land Progress Association, marking 50 years of ALPA and shining a light on the rich entrepreneurial past of Yongu people in five remote communities. We can't go to just go to Darwin Museum, so by bringing it to the kids, they can really engage with the learning and the displays, and it's their history that they are able to look at and research and find out about and answer questions and talk to other kids or other families. The exhibition has proven a hit with Territorians and tourists alike. Timber milled on Yongu country was crucial in rebuilding Darwin after Cyclone Tracy. There's been fishing businesses and even a peanut plantation. The display also looks back on the establishment of stores and supermarkets in Arnhem Land and of course the long-running trade of sought-after Yongu art. 
We were never told these stories and this exhibition provides all of these details. Um, you just see Yungu people, their barge captains, their nurses, their teachers, their store people. It's just what was happening in the 70s, uh, 60s, 70s, early 80s. It's hoped the virtual tour and associated learning tasks will help inspire these Year 9 students to become the next generation of Yongu businessmen and women. It's the quietest I've ever seen a classroom. They're all fully in there, engaged and wanting to see, the connecting with their country, connecting with their elders in photographs that they probably haven't seen before. And they're thinking for their future that they're going to do their own enterprises. Looking back on the past with a view to the future. Guy McLean, NITV News. must now step aside but when we come back we'll have a story about a new digital access studio in Nali Springs that will provide traditional owners in Central Australia access to the language, stories and ceremonies of their communities Your community Your conversation NITV Radio Traditional owners of Central Australian communities will be able to access the film and audio recordings contained in the unique Strathroe collection, thanks to a new studio built by the National Film and Sound Archive. And joining me to discuss this uh, development is uh, Gil Moody, Senior Manager, Indigenous Connections, National Film and uh, Sound Archives. Welcome to NITV Radio, Gil. Thank you. Now, it's said that uh, the Strathlaw Collection is one of the most important collections relating to Indigenous ceremonial life in the world. And now traditional owners will be able to access it, not uh, the actual uh, physical uh, items, but uh, through audiovisual recordings. That's right. So it's it's, um, an amazing collection that was, that was um, put together between 1932 right through into the 70s, so 50 years of collecting. Um, and it's got about 400, it had 400 reels of film and about a 1,000 hours of audio recordings that um, are part of that amazing collection. The Strello collection is actually a lot bigger than just the film and and audio recordings, uh, but the NFSA has, has just been working... Um, and collaborating with the Strello Research Centre in ensuring the preservation and digitisation of the film and audio contri- contributions. Yeah, so the NFSA has had uh, this collection actually for, well, more than 30 years now, and it's only now that they are really truly accessible to the wider public through uh, this project of digitisation. Yeah, so the the Australia Research Centre uh, deposited the material with um, the NFSA back in 1990 for safekeeping. We have special climate-controlled vaults, which mean that it keeps it safe. But in the last sort of four to five years, um, there's been a lot of uh, increase in digitisation of at-risk material. And this collection was viewed as at-risk because of its age and because of the original format. So the NFSA and the Strello Research Centre worked with the traditional owners and co-designed a project to ensure that everything was digitised, 
for safekeeping and for preservation. As you just said, uh, this studio stems from a co-design project by traditional owners and the NFSA, but also with a strong input uh, from uh, the Strathro Research Centre. That's correct. You know, it's an amazing project. And I've been lucky enough to actually, I've only been with the NFSA now for about 10 months. Um, And so I sort of inherited the the end of this project, this amazing project that's taken place. Um, With the co-design, it was, you know, it was really important that cultural protocols were put in place. So the traditional men came down to Canberra and they set up a working group with men from within the NFSA because the majority of the material that was in this collection is actually men's only sacred secret material. And so only men could actually be the people to view, to see, to touch any of that material. And the NFSA then worked worked up protocols. Two of the part of the protocols was that we had two studios that were restricted access so that they could be used for the digitization of this material. It's amazing that some of the some of the material is was 16 mil, millimeter films. The audio recordings were were old lacquer. They were reel to reel, and they were wire recordings, which you know are very um, out of date now. You no, know? very old very techniques. Hard. Yeah, I want to on those these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, they had to bring all these uh, old ancient techniques and, you know, material, merge them into something uh, that uh, they've managed to put together using uh, the latest uh, cutting-edge technology. That's right, the 21st century technology. So we've been able to then digitise everything. Um, So there was 400 hours of film and 1,000 hours of audio recordings that were all digitised to become... Uh, data basically and that data has then been returned back up to Alice Springs to um, the Strello Research Centre and to the the purpose-built Access Studio. So the Access Studio has been built um, to provide a, a space, a safe, a safe cultural space for the traditional owners up here to be able to come and engage with the material as we spoke about at the beginning, it's it's one of the largest records of ceremonial life. And so there is obviously much knowledge and important um, information to be shared amongst the community up here. Yeah. And how important is it for the traditional owners in Central Australia to be able to access uh, these uh, materials now? Look, I think it's been amazingly important for them because it's allowing the you know the senior men to engage with the younger men and pass on all of that knowledge i must say that i feel feel very honored to have been to be able to be a part of this project at this end of it because it is a, it is a men's it has been very much a men's project but i have had permission from the men to be able to talk about it on behalf of the nfsa um but you know so that's something that i really respect and I think it's amazing for that there is that opportunity now for all that learning to take place. Um, you know, lo- language, song, um, dance, I imagine, is all there. I'm, a- and I'm, a- I'm unable to actually see it or view it or hear it myself because of it being sacred secret. But there is a very small amount that is uh, for secular, so for general viewing, um, that, you know, w- we can view 
Yeah. But the majority of it is, as I said, men's only. So this access studio is not built for the public. It's built purposely for the traditional owners to be able to come and engage and access their material. Yeah, and I gather it's a way of uh, preserving knowledge, uh, the 21st century kind of serving, preserving knowledge that complements very well the traditional ways of uh, oral transmission of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, they're, you know, I think this, you know, they're able to sit down and have this, this safe space where they can show and share with, with uh, from seniors right through to young men. And I have to clarify again for our listeners that uh, this uh, studio is uh, actually located in uh, the Strathlow Research uh, Centre at uh, the Museum of Central Australia in Alice Springs. That's right, yeah. And uh, bringing all these projects together, it's not just Alice Springs and... uh, uh, I mean, uh, just uh, the NFSA and uh, the Strathlow Centre and uh, Museum of South Australia. There's also uh, collaboration with uh, the museum and that gallery of the Northern Territory. That's right, yes. So it's been a really great project. We also had some money from the um, Indigenous Language Australia as well um, for that helped to build the the um, access studio and it also helped to for the NFSA to be able to digitise the audio recordings. Gil Modi, Senior Manager, Indigenous Connections at NFSA, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Thanks for having me. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Now, this brings us to the end of today's program, but before we part, I'd like to invite you to check our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV Radio, because we have many more stories that are published and updated on a regular basis, some of which never make it to the airwaves. I am Bedra Dungandame, thanking you for your company this uh, Wednesday, after this Monday afternoon, Monday the 1st of May, or so May Day, or International Workers' Day. Thank you very much for your company. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.